Let's pray. Abba, we come before you in the name of Yeshua. Father, I'm asking for your grace and your spirit to be on me and on the people that we all can understand your heart and the things you've given to me to share today, Lord. May it find its mark in a way that will cause people to walk closer with you, to be more serious in their walk with you, and to be more able to impact their community, their family, and their friends. In Yeshua's name, amen. Well, one of the things that happens around this year, things change. You know, you suddenly see people putting lights all on their houses and, and uh, the malls get packed and, and there are people who walk around in these red suits and little hats and things are decorated. It's a very festive time. And so then at Ahavai, for people who know me for many, many years, I always ask, hey, um, uh, are you going to speak on the whole Christmas thing this year? And I really was like not really feeling to even address it. But a few weeks ago, I felt the Lord moving and urging that way. And part of it helped with, with also with Dahlia, who, who wants to share a dance today about Yeshua. And I said, that'll be really good. And we want to do that. So I want to I wanna talk to you today. You know, I know we've been working through the book of Hebrews, but we're going to set it on the back burner today. And I want to talk to you today, just mainly from my heart concerning this. Now, a lot of you have already done your research, and you know that there's some interesting things with this season and, and how to handle it and different ideas. And I want to address some of those things, and I want to give you some principles concerning this season and how I believe we as Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles should approach the season, how we should deal with it. Now, uh, another thing that's going on, a number of people for years have been asking me to write a book, uh, and I've told them I've actually written many, they've just all been written in my head, uh, and I have outlines and everything, but I did start one, and I want to read the introduction to you, and, and it will help to lay the foundation of some of the things I want to talk about today. The title of the book is called Unraveling the Enigma of Christmas to Reclaim the Messiah of Israel. That's the title of the, of the book, if I ever complete it. Unraveling the Enigma of Christmas to Reclaim the Messiah of Israel. So here's the introduction to the book. In the Western world, one would have to live in a cave cut off from all outside influences, including TV, radio, and the internet, to not be aware of the celebration of the Christmas season. It invades our culture on every level and every venue. On the radio, carols are played, malls are full of last-minute Christmas sales, public and private spaces are decorated with festive light and wintry decorations. Even government buildings may have up a decorated reef or a tree, or, or most businesses are closed on December the 25th. Both the religious and non-religious are busy preparing for the celebration a big celebration of December 25th. Trees decorated with lights are placed in malls, in and outside of homes, in hospitals and hotels. As the day approaches, the most common question put to you by not only family and friends, but also store clerks, hotel receptionists, security guards, and almost any stranger you engage, are you ready for Christmas? What do they mean by this question? If the celebration of Christmas is about the birth of Messiah, 
What do you need to do to be ready for it? People generally do not ask if you are ready for Memorial Day or Labor Day or Independence Day or Veterans Day or President's Day or even one's own birthday. So why ask this question about Christmas Day? And since it's supposed to be about the birth of Messiah, what instructions does the Bible give us and how to prepare oneself for this day? There are holy days in Scripture where one can ascertain some form of preparation before the celebration days. For example, the Gospel of John mentions the preparation day before the weekly Shabbat, commanded by God for Israel to keep as a covenantal sign forever. Or the requirement to prepare for the Passover meal, cleaning out your house, getting the leaven out, you know, it would take preparations before entering into the meal. Or one could look at the blowing of the shofar, Rosh Hashanah, as a preparation for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. However, where are the instructions for how one should prepare oneself for the celebration of Christmas? Well, I will tell you, make no mistake about it. The truth of the matter is that when this question is asked of you, the inference has nothing to do with being prepared for the Messiah but for all the additional trappings that are associated with Christmas Day. The inquirers are asking you, first and foremost, if you have found and purchased all the gifts primarily for your children, and then the rest of the family and friends. Standing next to that question there, they're asking you if you have put up your Christmas decorations, including your lights and especially a decorated tree. After that, they're asking if you have sent out all your Christmas cards and have purchased the food and prepared for the guest list for a Christmas meal at your house. And if you're not staying home, they will ask if you have your travel plans in order to go see grandma and granddad or visit your nieces and nephews. Jesus is not at the forefront of the mind when this question is asked. The preparation for Christmas has very little to do with preparations for receiving the Messiah. It is most related to consumerism and secular Yuletide celebration. The inquirers are not asking you about spiritual matters. They do not even ask if you believe in Jesus when they ask that question. Are you ready for Christmas? They don't even ask you if you believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter. And frankly, to many, it does not matter. Because lots of non-followers of Jesus, including atheists, participate in all these things. Now, there are some followers of Jesus who do not practice the decorating of trees and decking their halls with garlands, and they will respond to the question, when the question is asked, are you ready for Christmas, they will respond with a hearty, I do not celebrate Christmas. Strangely, even though the inquirers are not asking if you believe in the birth of Messiah, but the truth we're asking if you had your tree and gifts, will be sparked to ask you, why not? And sometimes follow up with either asking if you are a Christian or do you believe in the birth of Jesus? The putting up of trees and gifts and Santa, etc., etc., are associated with believing in the Messiah. They are, believe it or not. And yet none of these things are instructed by Yeshua or the apostles or even found in the narratives of his birth in the Gospels. The answer to the second volley of questions may be simply, I do not celebrate Christmas because it's pagan. Usually that ends the discussion. And the inquirers walk away wondering 
why you don't believe in Jesus. Some may hear in your answer and attitude the words, bar humbug, and conclude that you must be one of those misguided souls that have fallen trapped to some screwed spirit of anti-Christmas. But we must ask, is saying Christmas is pagan an accurate answer? Is Christian Christmas pagan? A straight yes to this question, as many well-intentioned souls who point to the customs of decorating trees and yuletide festivities as proof is simply too simple an answer, and frankly, not an accurate one. The fact is, is that Christmas season is a trichotomy of ideas, is a syncretism of the biblical truths related to the birth of Messiah, ancient pagan practices, and the culture of secular consumerism. To simply say it is pagan would suggest to the inquirers that the work of God in fulfilling his words through prophets to bring in the servant of Israel into the world is also pagan. However, in the narrative of Messiah's birth, found in the gospel records, it records the breaking of God into this world to bring redemption to Israel and to the world with angels and miraculous signs. In the Bible, angels are called ministering spirits and throughout Israel's history appear to establish the purpose of God. So as it be expected, the angels would be involved in the harrying of the coming Messiah into the world. Miracles have also been an important part of Israel's history. Moses did many miracles before Pharaoh and the children of Israel, including the parting of the Red Sea. Angels guiding the shepherds Angels were involved in appearing to Mary. Angels appeared to Zacharias. Miraculous celestial stars in the sky. These things were not borrowed from paganism, but were done by the command and hand of the creator of the universe, the God of Israel. That's the introduction to my book. I got a whole lot more to write. <laughs> a whole lot more. So, these are one of the things that we wrestle with in the Messianic community. And you know, when we ask the question, what is Christmas? Is it Christian? Is it pagan? Is it biblical? Is it just another secular holiday? And for Messianic Judaism, we also have to ask the question, is it Jewish? These are things that are important to us, and we need to answer this in an accurate way for an understanding. And so, before we do that, I want to have a little fun and ask you see what your Christmas IQ is. Just a little fun before I get a little more serious. Let's see if I have it here. Oh, yeah. And for those who've been at Al Havai for a long time and years ago were tricked by these questions, don't you say a word. <laughs> those who are newer and never heard me do this, these are the people I'm dressing, but something to think about. So here's a question. What color was the donkey that Mary rode into Bethlehem? Do you know? Well, it's, the question is a tricky question. Because where in the Bible does it say she rode on a donkey? The scriptures doesn't say she rode on a donkey. 
this is something people assume because people did use donkeys for traveling, but they also use other things. They use horses, they use camels. And you know, the, the illustration you get is just, you know, she's, and it's cute, I love it. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, don't see that I'm against this. But understand, you know, we, so, oh, and she came riding on a donkey. Really, how, how do you know that? Where did you get that from? Because the Bible doesn't say. So let's ask another one. How many hours was Mary in labor on the night that they arrived in Bethlehem? Well, here's the thing. What makes you think that, they, uh, that she arrived at night in Bethlehem and had the baby? I know a lot of the movies show that. The scriptures don't say that. In fact, if you look at Luke 2, 6, it says, after they had been there for a while, so she was in Bethlehem for some time before she came to the place of delivering. But see how we get affected by culture and the movies, and, and that's okay. I mean, I, I love a good story about, you know, I go way back to the days when I used to play every December the Little Drummer Boy. How many of you are old enough to remember that? And you look forward to it, and you wanted a drum. <laughs> can I have a drum so I can play, you know, play upon my drum to the king? But where do you find the Little Drummer Boy in the Bible? He's not there. What is the name of the inn that Joseph and Mary found was full when they got there? What was the name of it? Jerusalem something? Or Bethlehem? What was it? Holiday Inn? <laughs> it's a Holiday Inn. How much did it cost them? Did they have reservations? That's why they couldn't get in. They didn't, they didn't use Travelocity and get their reservation ahead of time. But here's the thing. This is where, again, a misunderstanding the Greek word that's used for, that's translated in a lot of translation as in, is the same word that in your Bible talks about at Passover, Yeshua getting to prepare the room, and they met in an upper room. It's the same word. It's not a hotel inn that they came to. People in those days with their homes use their upper part of their homes as for like a guest room and they would have that set aside and they would have that room to bring the extra guests. Well, they went to their family's home and obviously everybody's coming because of the decree and everything that's going on and they found when they got there and they're like, hey, can we have the upper room? You know, you know some of you have a special guest room in your house. They were gonna stay there and they found out Aunt Susie had already arrived and she got all her luggage all spread out already and they didn't have a place for them to stay. So it's the idea of thinking that they came, you know, and I know all the movies show them going from one place to another, the Holiday Inn, the Jerusalem this, the Bethlehem, whatever, and they, they nope, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, that's not what was going on. And it wasn't on that one night. They had been there for a while, Scripture says in Luke. They had been there for a while. So this is letting you see how we get affected by the culture around us. So this guest chamber is what it really is, a better translation, the upper room. So, which of the three kings gave their gifts first of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Which one would they give first? Well, the thing is, who says there were three kings? The scripture never says there are three kings. The scripture speaks of three different types of gifts being given, but it doesn't say there are three kings. And it really isn't the word king. A better term would be magi, where guys who studied the stars, there were scientists, really, of that day that came. 
You want a scientific dimension to the birth of Messiah? Well, these guys were the scientists of the day who studied all type of the science, the stars and everything, and they came, and, and, and from what we know from the culture in those days, and I know the movies don't show this, and you know, I've seen enough of them, you know, three little camels, three kings popping on their camel, through the three magi, guys who are quite wealthy, well-established, are just three of them out in the desert. No! That's not how people traveled when you had, you traveled with groups for safety. It was the first convoy, getting them all together. Let's move it out, everybody together. It was safely. And if you were of that wealth, you didn't always travel the whole trip. You carried with you your tents to set up, to dwell in. And more than likely, you brought your servants to help you with all these things. So it's just not three little camels out in there. It was a whole entourage of people coming. It's just, you know, some of the things we don't think about. Were the shepherds to the right or the left when the wise men saw Yeshua at the manger? Let me ask you again, because you got to know how to set up your, your, your display here. Was it said to the left or to the right? You put them, you said right, they're on the right. How many for the left side? Well, this is a tricky question because if you will read in Matthew, second chapter, verse 9 and 11, when it speaks of these magi, they arrived at the house where there was a young child. Okay, they didn't show up there. They weren't out, in the, in the, in, out there with the shepherds. They came later. And he's not in a manger, he's with Mary. She probably was holding him, maybe nursed him, who knows. But he was not just fresh babe manger, babysitting in a manger. Oh, how about the manger? That proves that he was in a barn. No. The word manger means feeding trough. That's what it does mean. It doesn't mean stable and everything. So they didn't have to go out into the stable. Because in those days, there was a section in the house itself where they would bring some of their animals in. I know that sounds crazy, but for those of you who have dogs, I don't want to hear it because you bring your dogs in the house, right? And they stay in the house. But people would bring their special animals, the one they got milk from. They had a section downstairs that they put them. So they went and grabbed the feeding trough and used that to make a bed to put your shoe in. So these are just some of the things that I like to throw out to show how much we are influenced by the cultural things around us. And we come up with ideas that didn't come from Scripture. And we write songs. We three kings of Orient. It's a nice song. I love the song. But every time I sing it today, I know it's inaccurate. It's not three kings. Later on in history, some people try to even make up names for them. They say, oh, this one's name was this, and this one's name was that. And they even figured out the names for them. Based on what? Not the word of God. Based on their own imaginations. And don't get me wrong, there's a place for imagination. We all use imagination in some form or fashion. We want to celebrate an anniversary or an accomplishment of someone or, or something God did in our lives. We come up with very creative ways sometimes to do that that we can't necessarily pour from Scripture, you know, what we decide to do. But the question is not whether or not you came from your imagination. It's whether or not it makes the Word of God void. Does it undercut the truth 
and get you believing in things that could be used by the enemy to maybe get a foothold into your life and move you away from the focus, which is the Messiah of Israel. And that's what you got to be careful about. So I just throw that around. This one's a fun one. I threw this in this year. Never asked this before, but this is an easy one, but I just get you thinking. So, did the disciples gather around the tree on Christmas Eve, Christmas at midnight, or Christmas morning? When did they all get together, Peter and all them? Come on, guys, let's get around the tree. Come on now. When, when, what time? What, who believe it was the evening? Uh, who believe it was midnight? And who believe it was the next day? Christmas Eve. You got to eat first and over here. The thing about it is the disciples didn't do that. It was many, many years later, several hundred years, at least 300 years before these things began to creep in. And, and the Christmas tree as we know it today didn't come to, to much later. So I want to talk about things. I could spend all day, but I'm not. Oh, no, it's too much here. Uh, I, believe me, I've, I've spent years over many, many years reading many different books, pro, con, this, that, and the other. And there's some books in particular I do recommend. I try to recommend every year that if you haven't read this book, I encourage you to read it. It's called The Battle for Christmas by Stephen Niesenbaum. Niesenbaum. And it's called The Battle for Christmas. Fascinating book. And a fascinating guy. It's a Jewish fellow as of last thing I've heard of him, he hadn't embraced Yeshua as the Messiah yet. But this is a Jewish fellow that grew up in New York, where Christmas is big, yet he's raised in a Jewish family. And he said, frankly, he says, man, as a Jewish kid, I was in love with Christmas. But I was Jewish. And Jewish people in the traditional community don't celebrate Christmas. He said, but I loved it. He says, the lights and the festivities and the trees and all the stuff went there. He said, man, I just wanted to be a part of that. I look up and I felt the Christians were having so much fun. He said, so he was so excited about it, he figured he could up, up one over Christmas. And so what he did is on during time of Hanukkah, he would dress up like Santa Claus. And for eight days of Hanukkah, he would go to his friends and bring them gifts each day for eight days. This is what he did. He loved it. Then he grew up and he went off to school and he, he majored in very sociological type of things. He, he was getting his doctorate and he decided, you know, he had to pick a theme, what he was going to write on. He says, you know what I'm going to write on? Something that when I was a kid I loved. He says, and that was Christmas. And so he dug in. And he picks up around the 15th century and tracks in great detail the development of Christmas to what we know today. And it's a fascinating read. I encourage you to read it. The Battle for Christmas by Nissenbaum. Something like N-I-S-S-E-N-A-U-M. But if you just put the Battle of Christmas Throw maybe just an N-I-S-S, you'll get it. And now you can get them really cheap. They used to be very expensive, but they're a lot cheaper now. But I encourage you to read it because it really tracks the development of some of the big things of Christmas season and the history of various groups and how they responded to it and how it became what it is today. And it's good for you to read. Some of it, depending on your background, it might shake your foundation concerning some things with Christmas. You will be shocked 
some of the practices where they came from. So I'm just going to warn you, this is a caveat warning, that you might be challenged and like, oh, man. But it is a good read, and he did a good research. Remember, this is a guy who loved the day, but he did his research, and he did due diligence to do it. So anyway, I want to touch on a few things, and it's very important. So here's the first thing. As a Messianic Jewish congregation, is the question we had to wrestle with years ago. What should we do with Christmas? Do you know probably 90% of the Christian world, in some form or fashion, will celebrate whether they have the scholarly knowledge. Some will say, well, no, we don't think he was born on the 25th, but this is the traditional time that we celebrate. 90%. We're talking billions around the world. And then there's some groups who have, for various reasons, said, no, we're not going to celebrate. We're not going to have anything to do with it and broken off. And, of course, the Messianic world, being that when the Messianic Judaism was rebirthed in America especially, most of the people came from Jewish backgrounds. Obviously, it was a Jewish movement. Gentiles began to come later, and, and as time went on, Gentiles began to come in great numbers. I'm, I've been in it long enough to know the times I could have counted the Gentiles on one hand. It's kind of reversed now. I remember when, when, when Gentile pastors were speaking out against Messianic Jewish congregations. That's changed a lot now. People are very favorable about Israel and Jewish people coming to faith, Jewish life. It's turned the corner. It's different. But some of us had to wrestle with those questions. We had to look at the biblical narrative, and then we had to look at our brothers in Messiah and had these traditions. I mean, it's been 1,800 years of development. And so you have to take it seriously. And as you get close to people, you get to know people, and you know their hearts. And even when you, know, when you know people's hearts, they might have something in their life as a believer that you realize, hey, I need to get rid of that. But their heart is so much for the Lord that you realize maybe it's not that much of an issue anyway. And you learn to weigh things differently. i give you one story. Many, many, many years ago, a pastor that I knew down in the Roanoke area of Virginia very large and growing congregation. This is a guy who was raised with the Christmas tradition completely. And this guy is excited about Jesus and loving him. And, and God arranged for us to meet. And we talked. And, and, and the reason why we met, because one of my sisters was going to his community. And she said, you got to talk to my brother. He's involved in this Messianic Jewish stuff. You might want to talk to him. And so he and I sat and we talked and we talked at length. And when the end of the conversation, he wasn't smiling so much. Because I challenged him. Just, I said, look, I'm not going to condemn you, but I just have a question that I want to ask you. Why do you do what you do? What is the reason why? What is, why does your community do what they do? What foundation do you build that upon? Is it built on God's word or tradition? And I said, don't get me wrong. Some traditions are good and they're okay, but some traditions are not. And this guy, as he began to research, he began to transform his congregation. But the biggest thing that he had a hard time with, he says, look, Pastor Ralph, brother, my wife will kill me if I remove the Christmas tree from my house. Now, I never told me he had to. But out of his own research, he realized he couldn't reconcile it all. And so what he did, he says, you know what, though, but I'm going to, 
I'm going to change the focus. And he totally changed his house around. Instead of it all being about gifts to his children, he made his children go out and give gifts to those who didn't have anything. My father did the same thing. He formed a thing called Christmas cheer, where we would spend Christmas Eve in a truck with all kinds of stuff. We'd find families that were in need, and we would ride around the truck. We'd bring them turkeys and food, and if they had a little kid, and the kid didn't have much, we'd bring them clothes. And that's what we did on Christmas Eve, riding around the truck, just handing things out to people. He wanted to put the focus in a different place. This guy went as far, the last time I remember I saw him was years ago, and I was in Roanoke, he says, you got to come over to my house, I want to show you something. So I said, okay, whatever. I come in, I see his tree, I said, what you want me to see your tree for, man? <laughs> you, know, you know I don't do trees. He says, yeah, but I want you to see this, man, I had to find this. He said, go look at it, just go look at it. It had all these ornaments on it. And the ornaments had both narratives of the birth of Jesus on it. You read these narratives, you read all about the birth. Everyone was scripture. He found a star of David that had scripture on it. That said, and there was a star that guided them. And he, he put that on top of his, his uh, tree. And everything was scripture. <laughs> I didn't smile. I said, brother, you do what you got to do. You do what you got to do. And that's great. I love this heart. And he changed it around. So I share that with you. Is that when you get knowledge, make sure your heart stays tender lest you become puffed up, stick your chest out, and begin to condemn people. And the end result of that is that you're not walking in love, but you're walking in condemnation. So you need to be very wise. So let me hit a few points here on that. Symbolism. Let me tell you, symbolism changes over time. It can, it can carry different meanings in different places, in different worlds. It means different things as you travel from country to country. Let's take this. What does this mean? What did you say? Come on. Anybody thinks it means anything else? Anybody thinks this means anything else? What? You said Trump. <laughs> Most of the time in America, this means, you know, A-OK, it's OK. That's how we use the symbol. Well, let me give you some others. In Finland, it means the number zero. And they want to say number zero, they go, number zero. In some Asian countries, and some, not all, it means the number three. In French and Belgium, it means you are a zero. So you say, hey, how was that? <laughs> you are a zero. You don't amount to anything. And Brazil's and some parts of the Middle East, we'll just say it's a vulgar expression to refer to someone's rear end. So if you go over, so one of the things to do when you work for certain companies, you got to travel different places, they will brief you on the customs of that community. And they will let you know there's certain things you don't do that you might do in America. Like in America, it's perfectly okay, you know, to, to go up to somebody and you take your left hand and say, all right, brother, it's okay. But you better not do that in Saudi Arabia. You don't use your left hand to greet people in Saudi Arabia. Because for many years, the left hand was used to taking care of personal business. So that when you, so when they trained, I was, had a contract to go to Saudi Arabia. They said, they're training us for that. They said, look, when you go there, you Americans, just sit on your left hand. So you won't reach over and say, could you pass me some of that? 
and offend every Saudi that's at the table. But in America, we don't have that. We wash both hands and we think it's perfectly okay. We don't concern ourselves with which hand is used to take care of personal business. One of them is used. We just hope people wash afterwards. Amen? Symbols can change from place to place. Customs can change. And the occult world is used as a representation of 666. And you'll see some of the rock stars and everything. And they're trying to say, hey, they're letting you know they're into this occult thing. But it doesn't mean everybody does it. Some people just means, okay, it's okay. And sometimes, you know, on the web, that's one of the things to do. They catch you. You know, Ken's out there, and he's turning to his wife. It's okay, dude. It's okay. So I get the picture of that. Puts it on the web. He's really a secret Satanist. See, he put the Satanist symbol up. No, he said okay to his wife. So be careful on the web when you're reading these things. They catch stars and people putting up symbols, and you run with that, and you don't know the background of how they're using it. In some Arab countries, it's used as a curse. In some European countries, when it's placed over the nose, what does it mean? No. It means you're drunk. I'm drunk. Different customs, right? Some places it means money. Some places it's used for issues of fertility. So I'm just, then why do I bring this up? Do I just want you to know all the symbols for this? No. It's just an example to show you how things can change from one group to another, from one customer to another. And if you saw, oh, yes. So if you read somewhere that the occultists used this for 666, and then you see somebody saying, okay, and you want to go say, see, I'm condemning them because they are really a secret Satanist. And yet you didn't take the time to see what it really meant. So that's the first thing of wisdom. Let us not be quick to jump to judgment of why somebody's doing what they're doing because it looks like something that you saw in a book that was pagan. December the 25th. You know, most scholarship, even among those who celebrate, the key leaders of the church world, most of them do not teach that Jesus was absolutely born on December the 25th. I'm talking across the line, evangelical, Catholicism, Protestant groups, most of them will say, no, he wasn't born on Tuesday. We don't really know when he was born because the Scriptures doesn't absolutely spell it out for us directly and say it was a cloudy day and it was uh, the, a Monday and it was this day of the month and he was born in the 9 o'clock hour. It doesn't tell us that. It didn't see that as something that was important for us to know. They were so excited that the Messiah had come into the world that that wasn't the focus to figure out all the details. They were very much like men are. I go to visit people, a lady at the hospital just had a baby. I come back, my wife says, oh, I come back. Oh, yeah, I saw so-and-so. She had a baby. Was it male or female? Hmm. It's a baby. How big is it? What kind of hair did it have? What are the color of the eyes? I don't know. But you were there. That wasn't important to me. A baby's here. Praise the Lord. Gift from God. This is wonderful. I have seen. That's it. That's all I'm going to write about. My wife will write details for you. Yes, it has a birthmark over on the left cheek and da-da-da-da-da-da, you know. Well, I think the disciples are pretty much like that. They're like, look, the Messiah has come. 
Some will say, well, December the 25th was a pagan day. I got news for you. Every day is a pagan day. It's just like when you get in an argument about Shabbat and people say, well, you know, those Sunday people are worshiping the sun, Sunday. Well, then we got troubles because we must be worshiping Saturn because Saturday means Saturn's day. And Monday was Moon's day. Wednesday was, what, Wooden's day, and Thursday was Thor's day, and Friday was some other God's day. Every day had named a God for every day. And if you study history, you'll find throughout the world that you can find something pagan on any day of the week because they're very superstitious people about things and events, and they would just, let star just move, and they're worshiping the star and the animals because they're given over to these things because they won't hold the truth of God in their hearts. But when we use arguments like, well, December 25th was a pagan day, and that's why you shouldn't celebrate it. Well, then you can never celebrate any day because there's something pagan associated with every day. The issue is not the day. The issue is what are you doing with it? What is your focus? You could take God's holy days, and if you change the focus of it, you'll pervert it. You could take Passover and turn it into something that God never meant it to be. Now, thank God, I will say that the Moedim of God overall have been protected. It is amazing that it's fought off commercialism and it stays focused. It's a little slipping in it sometimes with Passover and some things, but overall, the focus is still the same. I can't really say that about the development of Easter and Christmas. It was very quickly mixed with the surrounding culture. And things slipped in that had nothing at all to do with Yeshua. But you know what? When I think of reclaiming or unraveling, the fact of the matter is that at this season, if we're not careful and we get so hard that we don't want anything to do because we see pagan things, we might miss one of the greatest opportunities to share with our friends and family that don't know Yeshua about Yeshua. Because everybody's hyped about it. Everybody's seeing the lights and the stars and they're singing little songs and we may not like all the songs they sing, but they're more open. It's a wonderful opportunity to talk about Yeshua. You know, some churches have tried to put that emphasis back. They'll say, Jesus is the reason for the season. Let's put the Christ back in Christmas. There are groups that try to do that. And that's okay. I, I applaud them for that effort. Anything that will seek to focus people back to Yeshua, the Messiah, is a good thing. And so we don't want to throw the whole thing out. We know the water was pure at the beginning, and somebody came along and put some stuff in that muddied the water up. But then we go, oh no, there's muddy stuff in the water. I don't want, I'm, I don't want anything to do with it. Yes, but Yeshua's in the water when it was pure, when it was righteous, when it was targeted on him. So you got to be careful that, oh, I'm going to be clean and pure and I'm going to throw this out. But do you want to throw Yeshua out? You better have a filter that, that gets the junk out and let Yeshua come through. So we got to be careful in our knowledge that we will suddenly write everything off. Let me give you the basic principles. I just talked about one, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. 
Verse nine says, do not cause others to stumble. When we want to confront some of these things, you want to do it in a way of grace and helping people to understanding where you're not just sitting around saying the not, 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 don't, 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 don't. Why don't you point people to the do, 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 do? Amen. So pray about that. Maybe you've been beating your family on the head because you've come into this understanding and revelation that, that there's a mixture within Christmas and there were things brought in that is not from the Bible but it's from the pagan world and you have come hard against your family. Amen. And they're not listening. Amen. You know why? They don't see any grace in you. Amen. They don't see any grace in you. You got to be able to extend grace. Amen. Some of them be so hard. Here you got a family tradition where the family gets together and they want to exchange gifts. And you read somewhere, you know, well, you know, I look in the Bible and I see that every time gifts were involved that, 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 that there was pagan, it was a pagan king or, or something bad. And look at Job, you know, his, they were meeting on their birthdays and, and exchanging and having fun and, and poor Job was over there fasting and praying that something bad wouldn't happen on that day. So, you know, I just don't do that. But this is when your family gets together. I know one guy who's like that. He came to this understanding. He would go and he'd just sit in the corner being grouchy the whole time. Everybody else in the family, hey, here's a shirt for you, brother. Here's a shirt. I got a hat for you. Here's some food for you. Oh, and they've been slaving in the kitchen all night, made your favorite pie. I ain't any of that because this is all pagan. Since when was pumpkin pie pagan? Since when was pecan pie pagan? Come on now. Some apple pie. Since when was it pagan? <laughs> I've been like, yeah, yeah, we can talk about that stuff later, but I got to get a slice of this apple pie right now. <laughs> Hallelujah. Don't become that person. Go there. Love on your family. Be the best gift giver in that group. They said, man, when Brother Cameron comes, man, he be blessing us with some stuff. You know, and, and, and you do it all in the name of Yeshua. I'm blessing you. I just want to bless you because God is a giver and he blesses. He gave you life this morning. It's a great opportunity for you to preach and no one to tell you to shut up. They want to hear about good tidings and joy. And it's the wonderful you to put it right on Yeshua. Great opportunity. Yes, there'll be some you can take aside and dig a little deeper. But you want to point everybody to Yeshua and get them to understand. You may find that there's some secretly trying to understand what it's all about. Why do we do what we do? So don't let knowledge get you so puffed up that you get prideful and you just look down on people who might be laying their lives down for others and doing things you're not doing. I knew a guy who wanted to be so perfect and right and everything, he was studying it, and he was condemning people who were going to the homeless. He was condemning people who were going to the prisons. He was condemning people who were helping the poor and the shut down. And he wasn't lifting a finger because he was trying to figure out which elements on the Christmas tree had to be removed. And because they associated the event with a Christmas event, I am not going to go and help because I don't want to be associated with that. Brothers, sisters, we got to go bigger than this. Even Paul Apostles in the book of Acts shows his knowledge when he's dealing at Athens where they built this statue to the unknown God. And he turns to the people, he says, I see you're religious. I see you're superstitious. He says, but I want to tell you something. 
Don't think that God is made out of, of stone or some materials. He said, even your own poets say, we are all his offspring. What? Paul's quoting pagan poets? Yes, in the Bible. He records it. He quotes pagan writings in the Bible as truth because they got one place where it was right. As our friend Ties Durant used to say, even a broke clock is right twice a day. So if it's right, you can, you're not just, well, that's pagan, I'm not going to mend. No, this is an opportunity for you to say, hey, well, you know, this is what you guys believe. You know, that's truth to that. And they go, well, oh, they, they feel good now because you just pointed out an area of truth. And then, and these are evangelistic techniques, right, Sandra? Oh, it's truth to you. Oh, oh, and they go, oh, thank you. And they go, but I like to share some other things with that. Yes, Hanukkah is a Jewish holiday, we understand, and a great victory. But did you know that the Messiah of Israel gave a message on Hanukkah when he was there at Solomon's portico that he preached and revealed himself as the light of the world? See, these are opportunities. Don't get so hard that you close off the opportunity. Principle number two. Separation. It says, separate from the unclean. Do not inquire how the nations worship their gods and do likewise with the worship of Adonai. 2 Corinthians 6, 6, verse 16, 18 says, Therefore, come out from among them, be ye separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean, and I will receive you. Deuteronomy 18, 9 says, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God gives you, thou shalt not learn and do after the abomination of those nations. So we have to be serious about what we do and why we do what we do. That's why we study. That's why we try to have an understanding. That's why we try to make the proper separation. Because we don't want to do things that offend God. That's why we want to do it. So that's, it's serious. There's nothing wrong with taking time to see where you need to separate yourself. But let that separation be done out of, out of an understanding and love and not out of an ignorance and a, a knee-jerk reaction to something because you read something about, you know, well, you know, the Scriptures teach, you know, that the Christmas tree was, was all pagan. Does it really teach that? Some people say, well, yeah, yeah, over in Jeremiah, how many of you heard that? Some of you are like, well, Pastor, I was waiting for you to go to that passage. That, that, that's one of the ones I use. Let's look over there. Jeremiah, is it 10? Oh, yeah, see, now I know the people who really know. They knew it right off the top of their head. Just joking with you. Let's see, Jeremiah 10, oh, where is it? Ooh. All right, the person that yelled out, where is it now? Oh, there we go, Jeremiah 10. This is what some people will say. They say, help. It says, write in Jeremiah. Do not learn the ways of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the custom of the people are futile. They're vain. For one cuts a tree from the forest. The work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. And they fasten it with nails and hammers. And they say, see, there it is. There's the Christmas tree right there in Scripture. Well, let's, let's read this carefully. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They're upright like a palm tree. Didn't say it was a palm tree. And they cannot speak. They must be carried 
because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do good. This is not talking about setting up a tree in your house. This is talking about the pagans who would go out and find a big tree, cut it down, shape it into a, some kind of thing with wings maybe or face of a tiger and, and legs of a man, you know, just all kind of things. Give it some name, then overlay it with gold. That's what it means. It says gold and silver means to overlay. It didn't mean just have ornaments, to hang ornaments on it. Overlay it with gold and silver, and then they give it a mouth and ears and eyes, and then they bow down and worship it, and they carry it around and say, this is our God that delivered us. Last time I checked, the people out there buying the trees, I haven't seen one yet hold it up and bow to it. I see them strap it to the top of the car, shove it in the trunk, but I haven't seen them sit there and say, this is the God that we serve. This verse has nothing to do with the modern Christmas tree. It has to do with an idol, a complaint that looks part human and part animal. And, and they said, this is our God. This is the golden calf this, that was overlaid, these type of things. So I only bring that up to say, sometimes in our zeal to want to get to the truth, we just grab at anything that's been said because it sounds good. And we don't take the time to really look at the history and the context in which it was given. And we make statements, and here's the sad thing. You might make a statement thinking I'm on top of the game, and the person you're talking to has already done the research. And they know it doesn't mean that. And at that point, you just shrink in, their, in your credibility. So when you try to talk about Yeshua and Jewish life and Jewish roots, they don't want to hear it because they're like, this person knows what they're talking about. But they didn't even take the time to really research this. They saw it on the web. They saw it on the quick book. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. I'm going to run with that instead of really looking at it and seeing what it really means. So let's be careful. We do want to separate ourselves, but we want to do it with knowledge and wisdom and love. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 23. We got to be practical about those things. Says, all things are lawful, but all things do not edify or beneficial. So you may have liberty to do certain things as a follower of Messiah, and we do have liberties. I would dare say that if we went across this room, we would find that, that across a lot of different things that people have different traditions in their homes that they do, to even bring in the Sabbath. And we probably don't all bring in the Sabbath the exact same way. But it doesn't mean that others are wrong. Or more importantly, just because you have a liberty to do something, it doesn't necessarily mean that's a good thing. We have a lot of liberty in the Lord. But some of our liberty could cause our brothers to stumble. And so we got to check ourselves, ask that question. Why am I doing what am I doing? And will this cause unnecessary offense against my brother and sister? Even though I have the liberty to do it, maybe it's not expedient to do this. Maybe it will give the wrong message. Maybe it will point people in the wrong direction. I don't want to do that. I want to point them to Yeshua. That's what I want to be my focus. And Romans 14 is the big chapter about liberty. And we got to take this to heart. And even though I know some use it to say that it, it, it was giving issues concerning the Shabbat, I don't believe that that's the full context. What I do know about the time is 
the gospel message went from the Jews to the Gentiles, that many of those Gentiles formerly were pagans. And paganism wasn't a separate thing. It was very much a part of your day-to-day living. See, sometimes that's why when our country is trying to make negotiations with Muslim-run countries, they don't understand that Islam is not a separate thing from the nation that is a Muslim nation. It's, it's all together as one. We don't do that in America anymore. We separate this religion part, and we don't, we don't see it as tied in together. But Islam doesn't see it that way. It's all tied in together. And in those days, in the times of the Greeks, that was the same thing. You went to the marketplace, they didn't necessarily have, you know, um, Harris Teeter and Wegmans and uh, separate markets. If you wanted some of the best meat around, you got it from some of the pagan market shops. Why? Because they took animals, just like Israel had to sacrifice animals in the temple, in the pagan regions, they offered animals up to their various gods, and they didn't just use the trash animals, they used the best cut of animals, the ones that didn't have disease. And they were offered up, and then they would take some of the meat and sell it in the meat market. And so Paul in Corinthians 6 and 9 has to address that, that here are People who were former pagans, now they embrace Yeshua and they know that the idol is nothing. And so they start to go uh, into the pagan's temple and somebody sees them going in. On their form, somebody who's still a pagan. Oh, I see that he's still associated with that. So Paul gives a warning in Corinthians 9. You need to be careful. He says, look, you can buy stuff and nobody asks you any questions. And, and this is real today. There are some places, y'all, some of you don't know this, but some restaurants you go in and don't go looking for it because it might cause you to never be able to go to that restaurant again. You might find a, a picture of a Buddha or something off in the corner and food in front of him. Kung Pao chicken and all that right there in front of him. You're like, what's that all about? Well, that's because that's their offering. They take some of their food and offer it. And so somebody's like, well, I'm never eating in a Chinese restaurant again. That's not true. On December 25th, when it's the only thing open, you'll be out getting Chinese food. <laughs> but if they brought something to you and said to you, hi there, Gene. We're glad you came to our establishment today. We have Kung Pao chicken that has been offered to Buddha, and we're bringing it for you to eat. Yeah, you, you don't accept it, see? When they make it that point, it's like, no. Because maybe Linda will be like, oh, I guess it's okay to, to do the Buddha thing. Gene's <laughs> you know, doing it. It's okay. So, so that's why she goes, no, because she doesn't want to cause offense not to her brother and to the person serving that they think that they think that there's some weight with Buddha. And you want to make it clear to them, no, it's not. I won't have anything to do with that. He's, he's not in high. And that's what the Greeks did. It wasn't to Buddha, but it was to the various gods and goddesses that they worship. That's the context of Romans 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Doubtful things. The Sabbath is not a doubtful thing. Well established in God's word. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who eats only, who's weak eats only vegetables. This has to do with Going out into the marketplace, I'm just not not eating any of that that meat from there. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another man's servant? 
See, that stopped me in my tracks right there. Who am I to judge another man's servant? We got to be careful in the doubtful things, which gets down into the motivation and the heart of why somebody does something. We have to put things on the way to your matters and get to those first before we deal with some of the outward stuff that may bother us. Okay? It's very important. I shared with you many years ago about a brother who was part of our community and he was having problems with his family. And in those days, I, I gave a lot of, went to great details about the history of the Christmas tree, which parts pagan, which parts not, because all the things associated with the Christmas tree is not. Putting a big star on top that came from Christians did not come from pagans. They try to make a distinction. In the early days, Romans did not bring a whole tree in their house. They just broke off branches to decorate the house for green. They did not set a tree up in their house. Though people try to say that they did, they did not. All historians will stand with that. So that's not what they did. So people making stories up to try to foster up that thing about the tree. But the tree has a mixture of things. By the way, God loves trees. Not necessarily the ones they decorate today. But he talks about the tree of life that's going to be in, in, in the end. It's going to be the, the, it's going to, the tree of life is going to be on both sides for the healing of the nations. So God's not against trees. He's not against stars either. People run with it. Well, you know, the pagans, you turn the star and it's a symbol of Satan and there's a goat. And so therefore stars are evil and bad. And they even try to attack the star of David. And again, they're speaking from their ignorance that they don't understand fully. God is the creator of the stars, guys. He gave it to the people for them to guidance, to learn things from. They weren't supposed to worship the stars, but they were supposed to see that the stars are a gift from God. And it's God who takes a star to lead people to Yeshua, the Messiah. We of all people should be excited about stars. The star of, of Judah, the scepter, will not depart. Until he comes. To shallow comes. We should be excited about a star. We should be excited about the tree of life that will be in the garden for everyone. That's right. On a tree that Yeshua was nailed to, hung on to become a curse. We shouldn't be against, get to the point, oh, trees. No, let's point people back to some trees that are really important. Let's use some wisdom. Anyway, I knew this guy once. Long ago, he was having problems in his marriage. He and his wife were about to split up, go separate ways. And he said, Pastor, can you come and meet with us? Anything. First, this guy, was a very prideful guy. I'll handle it myself. But it got to the point he needed help. And he finally came to me and said, Pastor, just can you come? Now, he knew I had spoken in details about certain things about Christmas. And I walked in this guy's house, and in his he had this one of these double ceiling homes, and in that was the, one of the biggest in-house Christmas trees I've ever seen in my life. That thing went all the way up. I'm like, that's a big tree. And he felt bad. But we sat down, and I talked with them, and God gave me grace of what to say to them. They were able to repent of some things. They were able to reconcile. Uh, they did well. In fact, they, there's good stories. They went on to be missionaries and did a lot of good work and all over the place. Really good stuff. But as we were finished and they were reconciling, we're walking back to the car. He said, well, Pastor, uh, I, I got to ask you a question. I said, what? He said, why didn't you say anything in there about my tree? And I looked at him. I said, what kind of guy do you think I am? Your marriage 
is about to be fall, to fall apart, which God says, what he has put together, let no man put asunder. God who says he hates divorce. And you're about to go there and you think I'm going to spend the night talking to you about your tree? Really? He said, oh man, I'm sorry. I said, but now that you brought it up, <laughs> let's talk about the tree and some of its details. Let me give you a couple other things. Then we get ready to close out and we're going to see from my dear sisters who do a wonderful thing. There's a lot I can talk about this and I'm open to doing Oneg, find me, ask questions and, and get to things. But let, let me talk about one that's very important in America because he's the biggest thing going this season. And that's our beloved Santa Claus. Santa's big. He's huge in America. Now, I like to sometimes say things to shock people to get them to think. And I'll say things like, people say, well, oh, people start talking about Santa and they go, oh, that's just funny. And I say, well, actually, I, I, I believe in Santa. Yes, I do. I'm like, true confessions here. I, I believe. And Santa Claus, he, that definitely. Can't do away with him. And right away, people are like, oh, no. See, once again, we haven't taken the time. If you're looking at me like, what? We haven't taken the time to do the study. The real person who existed in history, his name was St. Nicholas. He was a Christian whose parents died while he was a little boy, and he was an orphan. This is in the 6th century. And he was taken, actually not the 6th century, before that. Sorry, getting mixed up with something else. Let me give you the exact date of his birth. He was born in 270 CE in Turkey, what is now Turkey. He was orphaned as a young child, came from a well-off family, so he was raised by the church because his parents were killed. And he gave his life to Jesus. And when he came of age, he got his inheritance. How would you like, you came of age, you got this big inheritance waiting on you. You're a young man, you know, 17, 18 years old. Big wealth just came into your hands. Yeah! Thank God he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he took very seriously that he shouldn't let his right hand know what his left hand, his left hand know what his right hand is doing. He believed that he was to help people who were poor and who were going through difficult times, who were suffering. And he took his inheritance and he used it all to help the poor. And he was raised and eventually they made him a bishop in one of the churches there in Myra. And he became a bishop there. And there's some things about him I want to tell you. He's a very fascinating guy. As I said, he used his inheritance to assist the needy, the sick, and the suffering. He became the bishop of Mara in Turkey. He was known to be the defender of the faith against Roman persecution of the church. I mean, the Romans in those days, we're talking 270, Christianity was still an illegal religion. And if you were a believer in Jesus, you became sport at the Colosseum or held as a torch with tar to be burned in the fire for your faith in Jesus. 
And he was known to be bold and come against the paganism in his day and speak out for the faith that Jesus is the only way. This is what we're talking about, Nicholas of Mara. He eventually was, and the reason why he was doing this is because the Romans were forcing the, the priests and others to deny their faith and go back and worship foreign gods and everything. And he would stand his ground, he would preach, and they wanted him. And eventually they arrested him. He spent a lot of years in prison. When he was released from prison, a lot of people don't know this, he was at the council of Nicaea. He was one of the bishops there, and he was one of the most spoken people to defend the deity of Yeshua, the Messiah. When others were trying to make him a little God, he was the one that spoke up and said, oh, no, 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 he is not a little God. He is the word made flesh. He is the word that existed from the beginning. Nothing was made apart from him. This is Nicholas of Mara. It's good to know the history about this guy, isn't it? Now he starts, already I can see people's eyes going, oh, it's kind of changing. He was known for his acts of kindnesses. In those days, if a young woman didn't have a dowry, it would be hard for them to get married. And if they didn't get married, they wouldn't have somebody to take care of them if their father died. Well, there was a particular guy who was sick and he was dying and he got in great debt and he didn't have any money to be able to pay the dowry for his daughters. He had three daughters. Lamb, three daughters, <laughs> three. And he didn't have the money to pay the dowry so somebody would take them off your hands and take care of them. And so it was Nicholas who snuck into the house and left gold. In those days, people would dry their, their socks out of the fireplace. Things were wet. That's how you did it. You didn't have a dryer. You stuck it in. You let it sit over the fire. And he went and put money in it. He got arrested for that because they thought he was a thief. He had explained to him, no, 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 I was just going in to leave them something. He was known for his love for children, especially those who were orphans. And he would give and he would take care of them. In 345 CE, on December the 6th, he died. And the church said, you know, he was such a good guy, we want to remember this day. So to this day, in many church circles, December the 6th is St. Nicholas Day. The Catholic Church, under their tradition and practice, eventually decided that he was a saint much later. I know we don't agree with that method of sainthood, but that's what they did. And be honest with you, it was the church practice of vindication of saints and the mixing with pagan practice that led to this defender of the faith being exalted to a magical status. As the church went out to other worlds, they began to mix things among the dramatic people, they already had a practice where they worship Odin as a god. He, he rode, Odin, as, as the god of the dramatic people, rode an eight-legged gray horse who could leap great distances. And he would, Odin would ride around and bring gifts to children because it was the season of the rebirth of the sun and the, that had gone down because everything centered around the solstice and the longest, longest night and the shortest day. And, and the next day they were scared. And, and so this Odin would come and bring gifts as hope for the future. In the Norse tradition, they worshiped Thor as a god. I know that upset some of you in, in the Avengers movie that Thor was worshiped as a god. And he flew on his chariot, pulled by two magical goats. And, then, and what happened in the Netherlands, as 
this thing about not Thor and all that, but the story of St. Nicholas, they use the word Santa Claus. That's how you say, we say Santa Claus. We actually got Santa Claus from the Dutch. Okay, they took it. And it's a way of saying Nicholas, St. Nicholas. That's how you would say it in Dutch. And the problem is, so it was focusing on him at first, but they had these pagan practices around and they began to fuse the two together. And so suddenly, St. Nicholas center clause, which means St. Nicholas, they began to bring the story that he had a flying horse that could bring him around. He also had a helper named Black Pete. Very interesting one to read about. They still do that today over in Europe. Black Pete travels around with him. He was there to give out punishments and other things. Good children were given presents and shoes and they were known to leave carrots and hay in their shoes so that they could feed the horse that Santa Claus came around on. Black Pete would, Pete would climb in the windows and chimney to deliver the gifts of Kennedy. They still have that tradition today. So now it's getting mixed, mixed together with pagan stuff. This defender of the faith now becomes a magical being flying around in a horse. And it's only when it came to America, they extended it to the reindeer. I guess maybe during the eight-legged of Odin, they switched it to now reindeer. And he becomes this guy. And it was really American who, who populated, who made popular this idea of Santa as we know it today. In 1821, William Gilly published a 16-page booklet for children that had words about a reindeer, one reindeer, driving, and as they went from Dutch to English, Santa Claus because, becomes Santa Claus. That's why we do it in English. Still just means Saint Nicholas. That's what it means. And so he did this, so now the focus is on the reindeer. Then in 1823, Clement C. Moore, no relationship as far as we know to Ralph Moore, uh, wrote a book called A Visit from St. Nicholas, more known to people, Twas the Night Before Christmas. And in that, he mentions eight reindeer by name. Several of those names were Dutch names. And he made this up, and it took off. But it wasn't complete yet. In 1930, Coca-Cola redesigned Santa. Because at first, the original Santa Claus was a thin guy. He had a Weight Watchers program in those days. He was thin and tall. And they reinvented him into a chubby, round, fat guy with his Coca-Cola. And it took off. And it became popular. In 1938, Robert L. May got a job at Montgomery Ward to do something to help bring the children in. And he wrote a book about the story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And that Rudolph is added to the story. So now, a couple of statements. Some people are really against Santa Claus. And they'll say things that are just not true. Oh, he's in red because it represents the devil. No. Red was a very popular color that the clergy used in their cloaks, along with white. It wasn't for the devil. Or some will say, 
well, if you take, I just heard this this week, this guy was saying, saying, well, if you take the word Santa and you change the letters around, it can say Satan. And then you have claws, and you make it say claws, Satan's claws. He's trying to get your hands into it. I'm going to tell you, that's a real stretch. Because that's not the history and the meaning of it. Santa was just another way of saying saint. So I'd like to give you my comments on this, because I think this is important, especially those who have kids coming up. My comment is very simple. Don't lie to your children. Tell them about Bishop of Mara and how he, as a follower of Yeshua, was committed to the faith and took seriously Yeshua's word concerning harming children. Matthew 18, 15, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it will be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is an opportunity when your little children say, What's the Santa Claus? Who's that? He says, well, you know, others have mixed stories in about him that are not true. He does not have a reindeer. A reindeer that flies around. He doesn't have magical powers. But let me tell you about the true Santa. His name was Nicholas. He was an orphan that was born and came of age. And when he became of age, he took serious his faith in Yeshua. And he went out and he helped the poor and he helped the sick and he helped those who were suffering. And he gave of all his wealth to the world. He suffered for the faith. He was beaten. He was put into prison. He was at the Council of Nicaea where he defended the deity of our Messiah. So that's the truth. We want to remember our brother. If we're going to remember him, that's how we want to remember our brother stood for the faith. May we be as bold in giving of our lives. So let's not let secularism and commercialism and paganism rip away the truth of things that our brothers and sisters have done. Let us bring the truth. So that's what I did with my kids. Because we went and they were really tiny. We didn't do Santa. They, they never had, you know, we're going to go sit on Santa lap and all this sort of stuff. You know, and they wonder who. When they got of age, they said, well, what is this? That's what I told them. I said, this is who he is. And you can live his example. If you grow up and live your life like that, to live for the Lord. And they went, okay, Dad. Well, that's all this other stuff. I said, that's, that's people just adding stuff that's not true. But I wanted you to know the truth. Because I wanted my kids to know that if I told them something, it was true. I did not want them to get at a certain age and find out, oh, all this stuff about Santa and the rain ain't true. I guess all that stuff about Jesus is not true either. Just a way to make me do what's right. Frankly, I think they give Santa too much. That just messes up with kids. I mean, if you were a kid, think about it. You got the little babe in the manger. It's kind of sitting there, good, good, good. And you got this guy who comes down the chimney, his magical powers, who's going to bring you all these gifts if you're good. Who keeps a list of all your deeds. Well, he's sure getting some, some deity stuff here. And that's the thing that's scary when parents think they're playing a kid children's game. And they do that and they lead their kid astray. But you don't want to leave your kids cynical. Tell them the truth about Nicholas so they have something to share. When people say, do you believe in Santa? They say, well, I believe in Nicholas of Mara. He was a believer in Yeshua like me. 
I believe in Yeshua too. I believe in the Messiah of Israel. I embraced him and he lived for him. And I hope I live just as bold as he did for the faith. Do you get it? So that's what I give you. There's a lot that can be said. Like I said, I could spend all day talking about this. All day. There's so many things. But we don't have all day. 